Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. The title of this sermon is Jesus on Marriage, Divorce, Remarriage, Singleness, and Kids, Part 1. <laughs> it's exhausting saying that title, honestly. Uh, this will be a two-part series due to the enormity of our text this morning and the topics before us. Again, as you can see from the title sermon alone. So uh, for our time today, we will focus on what, what Jesus taught on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Again, part one. And then next Sunday, we're going to focus on singleness and kids. And that will be part two. Um, I'll be honest, part one of this series is pretty heavy. It's a pretty heavy and sobering text that's before us in light of the topic, again, being marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but a very important topic to address. So due to the subject matter of our text, let me just say a few things up front before we dive into our text this morning, a sermon disclaimer of sorts. First, the sermon will be longer than usual today. which some of you probably don't want to hear. But please just extend me grace, and please know it's a very important text, and um, yeah, it's just longer, and may God grace me to do it in a way that doesn't seem long. (laughs) God, give me grace. Secondly, we can't possibly cover everything to be said on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Those are pretty big issues within the church, So you're going to have to look for further resources, and we have a couple recommendations for you this morning. We put together a small paper that's sort of a position paper on some of these things that will help navigate us as a church. Those are going to be available today at the Connect desk. So there's a position paper on marriage and divorce, or marriage, yeah, remarriage and divorce. So that's at the resource desk, and if you have further questions, they'll answer some of the questions that... I don't necessarily answer this morning. Um, And then thirdly, there are many great books on the topic. A really great recommendation on the topic is by Jay Adams. This book right here, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. It's less than 100 pages. It's very succinct, but very, very helpful. Sometimes these issues around divorce and remarriage within the Christian community get rather complex, and this helps sort through a lot of those issues in a very faithful and a very biblical way. So again, if you have further questions, we have these books available at our resource, uh, t- uh, resource table today, and you can grab one of those after our gathering, or you can find it on Amazon. Lastly, and it's very important, for those of you who have experienced the pain of divorce, Please know, if you in any way feel signaled out today, this is not God's goal. This is not my goal this morning. All of us together as a people, as a community, and as a church are touched by this brokenness. And I want to say from the outset, specifically to those people who have experienced the pain of divorce, that God loves you. That God loves you and he is for you. Okay, so with all that said, let's get to our text this morning. 
We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 of Matthew chapter 19. Just so you know, I'll be reading the whole text, verses 1 through 15, for the sake of context, but unpacking verses 1 through 10 today only for part one of this series. So let's start reading now, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we come before you this morning with a topic that is very sobering and very heavy. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. I'm asking, Holy Spirit of God, that you would teach your people, that you would teach your sons and daughters, that you would lead us as your church, your people, into all truth this morning. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would give ears to your people. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, this is a heavy and sobering text this morning, obviously. And let me also say, I did read all of verses 1 through 15 for the sake of context this morning, but we're going to focus strictly on verses 1 through 10. And as we just read the subject matter in our text before us, I know it can make some of us wince and perhaps uncomfortable a little bit. And maybe 
for some more than others. Why? Because none of us, none of us live lives that are untouched by broken relationships, by messy relationships, or by the difficulty of family. None of us live lives untouched by that. It's clear in Scripture that God has ideals for marriage and for family, etc. And it's, it's clear from our lives that none of us have experienced God's perfect in, intent and ideal for relationships. Again, none of us have experienced God's perfect intent and ideal for relationships. We all, in one way or another, are touched by brokenness that comes into our lives through family relationships, broken sexual out, sexuality, etc., etc. All of us then are in need of God's grace and God's healing. We are also in need of God's truth and understanding. So grace and truth has come to us in and through God's word this morning. And it's really made evident in the first two verses. It may seem merely like it's just a transition, but the first two verses are really, really important in the details this morning. The first two verses, they frame this whole thing. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. When Jesus, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So one of the things that is really important is Jesus is leaving Galilee, where he spent most of his life, where he has lived out almost the entirety of his ministry up to this point. And now he is heading south through Judea to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? What lays before him? The cross. Jesus is on the final leg of the long journey of God's love incarnate in the person of Christ. And he is heading toward the cross. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this journey and for this moment. Remember he said two chapters ago in Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he also mentioned it again in chapter 17. And here now we have that moment where Jesus is headed resolutely toward the cross. And here's why that's important. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, our brokenness, and our messiness because He loves us. And He loves us in spite of our sins, in spite of our brokenness and the messiness and the way we are all touched by it. And so all the messiness that is represented in this text is framed in, the, in this idea that Jesus teaches these things about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Don't forget that. This is framed in the cross. It's framed in the grace and the love and the goodness of God. 
So while he's on his way to the cross, he's not teaching this as some professor in an ivory tower. He's not giving us this teaching as some cold counselor. He is doing it with the joy that is set before him. Matthew also tells us there in verse 2 that great crowds followed Jesus. When Matthew said followed, he doesn't just mean that they were just present in the crowd, but they were following Jesus. Just like we are endeavoring to follow Jesus here at Reality Ventura. That means that these things about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, these things are couched within the idea of being Jesus' followers. And so in that idea of following Jesus and the love of the cross and His healing work and the newness of His kingdom, within that, within that framework, Jesus begins to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So in verse 3 it says, Some Pharisees came to test Him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now notice here that the Pharisees are not coming to seek genuine information. It says that they came to test him. And they are trying to see what his position will be. They are bringing a very hot topic of the day up to Jesus. This was like a hotly charged issue in the first century in Israel. And part of the Pharisees' goal here is it's sort of like a political setup. No matter which way Jesus goes here, what position he takes in answering this question, he is going to offend some of the population. They are setting Jesus up with the goal, obviously, to turn people against Jesus. Culture was so sharply divided on this issue that no matter how Jesus responded, he will upset and alienate a lot of people. There were two camps during the time. There was the majority view and the minority view. And the way some of those views were sort of expressed or sort of played out in the life of Israel was in the context of rabbinical debates. And I'm going to go, I'm going to mention a couple rabbis' names Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Shammai, and then I also want to mention Rabbi Akiba. They will represent the different views, which I'll talk about in a moment. So, like I mentioned, there were two views during the time that the rabbis were debating, and they are around a single verse from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which said this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out from his house, and the verse continues, but we don't need to read more of the verse. The, what we need to know this morning is the debate centered on those two phrases. What does it mean the rabbi says, or those rabbis debated and said, 
that she finds no favor in his eyes and has found some indecency in her. So that was the debate for a long, long time in Israel around the issue of divorce. What did Moses actually mean there is what they debated. Now, there was the majority view and the minority view, like I said. The majority view was represented by the rabbinical school of Hillel. And Hillel was, one, was the one who headed up that school of thought. And it had interpreted the verse to mean that you could divorce your wife, you could divorce your spouse for any reason. And they literally said in their writings, in the Talmud, you could divorce your wife because she burnt a meal. Or she had a bad hairstyle. Or talking to other men on the street. Or because she spoke disrespectfully about the in-laws. So let's let that sit for a moment. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> that was the majority view, believe it or not. That you could divorce your wife for any reason. They would say that that's what Moses was really getting at. And then later on, Rabbi Akiba came along and he said this. If, I mean, she finds no favor in her eyes. He's, he's directly speaking to the phrase, she finds no favor in his eyes. Includes the idea, if you found a woman more beautiful, you can divorce your wife and marry her. I'm sure he came up with that idea for himself. I'm just assuming there. But that was the majority view in Israel during that time. The other view was the minority view represented by Rabbi Shammai or the rabbinical school of Shammai. And it said this, you could not divorce your wife for such reasons, but you should divorce your wife in the case of adultery. To find some indecency in her was to find that she had been unfaithful. And so the Pharisees present Jesus with the majority view. Notice the one that they are laying before him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is what most people are saying, Jesus. Do you say it? Again, they wanted to test him. This was a big question then, and it is a big question now. And Jesus says in verse 4, Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let's break down Jesus' response for a little bit. First of all, he starts off by saying to the Pharisees, Haven't you read? Which was such a nice little insult by Jesus. You know, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the religious leaders of the time. And he knows they are trying to set him up. And he knows what this match is all about. 
And so he gives them a little jab and he says, haven't you read? But more than that, what Jesus is doing there is appealing to the ultimate authority on these issues. He did not say, well, Rabbi Shammai, or well, were Rabbi Hillel heirs, or well, this other rabbi, or in my opinion, he doesn't say that. Jesus says, haven't you read? In other words, when thinking about these issues, haven't you appealed to the ultimate authority, which is God's word? That's what Jesus is doing here. He is saying, if we have questions about these things, the place that we ought to go, the full and final authority, the only opinion that matters is found in the word of God. That was meant to confront their thought process. And it was meant to confront the popular culture of that day. And it's meant to frame and inform and conform our thinking as God's people today. The Word of God, the Bible is the final authority on issues such as these. It's the final authority on all issues. And it's interesting where Jesus goes. He goes right back to the very beginning. He references Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Not only is he saying that the Bible is the full and final authority on these matters, he's also saying that these things are rooted in creation and rooted in God's intent. Therefore, it's not a matter of a trajectory of culture. It is not something that is outdated or traditional or needs to progress as man becomes like more modern. Jesus says it's not an issue of find, finding even the modern progressive perspective. Or the old traditional perspective. It is a matter of scripture which, which represents God's creational intent for, for humanity. So Jesus again says, haven't you read? And then he quotes from Genesis 1.27... And Genesis 2.24. First, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2.24, it says, speaking, or he says, speaking about marriage, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother... And be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So both passages, but the second verse in particular, Genesis 2.24, is paramount. It's paramount in the biblical understanding of marriage. Both Jesus and Paul reference it when, a, when they are answering questions about marriage. Notice what Jesus does here. When he pushes us back to the book of Genesis, the first thing that he brings out in his mind is marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the biblical view. The second thing that Jesus says and points us to is this idea that a man is joined 
to his wife and that they become one flesh. Jesus used the word united here in Matthew. It says joined in the NASB. Other translations say cleave. The Hebrew word actually means to be cemented together. To be cemented together. And then Jesus adds commentary to that and says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one tear apart. That's huge. This is huge. Do you feel the weight of that? When a couple speaks their vows and consummates their vows with sexual union, it is not man, woman, pastor, or parent who is the main actor. God is the main actor. God is. God joins a husband and a wife in one flesh. They are no longer two, but they are one. That there is permanence to it. They are cemented together. And that it's a work that God does between two people. Therefore, it's a covenant relationship. A contract may exist between two people... But a covenant is between the bride and the groom and God. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate or tear apart. That's the biblical view of marriage. A covenant relationship that can't be broken. And so Jesus' response to the question in essence is no. Marriage is meant to be permanent. No divorce. That's his first answer. The summation of this first answer was, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But the Pharisees are unsatisfied with this answer, so they drill down in verse 7, and they say, why then, they asked, Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied in verses 8 through 9, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the Pharisees go back to the text that has been debated amongst them in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they ask saying, you say no divorce. Then why did Moses command that you could be divorced? And Jesus corrects them. Notice the language here. They say, why did Moses command? That's their interpretation of the passage. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you have already misinterpreted it. Moses did not command divorce. Moses was permitting divorce. And then he takes them right back to Genesis and says, but it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, that's not the idea of creation, and that's not the intent of God. 
Jesus keeps pushing them back to the word of God and back to Genesis, letting scripture interpret scripture. And then he tells them the reason why Moses permitted divorce in the law. Because of the hardness of our hearts. It wasn't that God instituted marriage in Genesis 2 and then he instituted divorce in Deuteronomy 24. God never instituted divorce. He only instituted marriage. But humanity began to practice divorce. So when the law was given, God through Moses was putting some parameters around the practice of divorce. Moses gave the law to regulate the common practice, not approve of. A merciful thing to do. Why? Because God in his mercy was also putting some protection around the women who had very few rights, of, if any rights, during that time. When a woman was sent away in divorce during that time, she had no recourse for income or protection or anything. So a certificate of divorce afforded her some cultural, legal, and societal recourse for protection and provision. So that's what God's law is doing there. Putting some parameters and protection around what people are doing because their hearts were hard. And they weren't recognizing the original intent of, God, of what God had said and meant in the book of Genesis. So this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is a concession, not a command. Jesus said in verse 7, Moses permitted because of the hardness of your, hardness of your hearts. And then Jesus goes on to give the correct interpretation of the passage that was debated by the rabbinical schools in the next verse. In verse 9, he clarifies it for us. I tell you that if anyone divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus here provides an exception to what he previously said in answering the question. His first answer was, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Hence, no divorce. And then he reasserts it with a singular exception, except in the case of sexual immorality. So we, of course, we want to define what is the definition of sexual immorality, and we would like to define it broadly. And to be honest, the word in Greek can be defined broadly. The Greek word is pornea, which means all kinds of sexual immorality and sexual acts. But most scholars would agree what it means in this context is adultery. That Jesus is saying, except in the case of adultery, you shouldn't get divorced. Jesus provides an exception there. And it's the, it is really the only exception that Jesus ever gives in Scripture. The Apostle Paul gives us one more exception when addressing these issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which I would encourage you 
at some point today, read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he talks about if a non-believing spouse wants to leave a believing spouse and refuses to stay, then that person is free from that covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says, But if a husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. So those are the only two exceptions given to us, given to us in Scripture. Jesus says, no to divorce. It's not an option. That's not God's intent. That's not God's creational intent. But here are two exceptions. One, adultery. And two, if an unbelieving spouse will not stay, abandonment. What this means and what they had to hear for the majority of you in Israel and what we need to hear, what I need to hear, what we need to hear in our view and culture today is Jesus and Scripture rejects the vast majority of reasons for divorce today. Incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, financial problems, life trauma, falling out of love, etc., etc. None of those are allowed in Scripture as reasons for divorce. Now, what about abuse? What if a spouse is in danger? If you are in a physically abusive relationship, which I hope and pray nobody is today, Jesus wouldn't want you to remain in a place of danger. Jesus is committed to the protection of the innocent. But Jesus is also committed to the repentance and healing of the sinner. And ultimately is committed to the reconciliation of even the most distressed relationships. So I wouldn't and I don't think Jesus would counsel you just to suck it up and deal with it. No way. One of you may need to move out. But I can't biblically, please hear me, I cannot biblically say that you automatically have a pass to get divorced because of it. Again, ultimately, God desires repentance and reconciliation. It may seem impossible, but God is in the business of doing impossible things. Please hear me right now. I honestly hope and pray nobody <clears throat> is in that type of situation. <clears throat> if you are in a situation of physical abuse, I am not trying to give some simple try little answer here right now. This is really complex. This is really, really sensitive. And I can't address everything I probably need to address with. So what I'm asking, if you are in that situation and you need counsel, I'm available. The pastors are available for you today. And please, again, just know I'm not trying to give some simple little trite 
explanation here was something that is so heavy, so painful, and so wrong. So divorce is permissible only in the case of adultery on the part of one of the spouses or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And yet it gets a little tougher. Very importantly, what Jesus doesn't do here is just wholesale outright side with the minority view. The minority view was of Deuteronomy 24.1, which was you should get divorced in the case of adultery. That was the rabbinical school of Shammai. It seems as if Jesus is agreeing with the minority view, but he is not. Whereas they require divorce for adultery, notice the language there. Jesus only allows it for adultery. It's a concession, not a command. Jesus didn't say, if your spouse commits adultery, you need to, you must, you ought to get a divorce. Jesus actually says, you may. It's a concession, not a command. Why is that important? Because Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's leaving the door open for forgiveness and reconciliation and the power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God. He leaves the door open for marriages to be saved and salvaged even in the worst of betrayals and the deepest of pain and the most horrific of things. Jesus stands as the one who always has hope in the power of his own cross, the working of the Spirit, the power of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Remember, all of this was framed in the cross and the kingdom and the healing that comes in his kingdom. There are many testimonies of God radically forgiving, restoring, healing and reconciling broken relationships even in the case of adultery. Remember Dom's message last Sunday on forgiveness. Specifically forgiving those who have sinned against us. Forgiving because we have been forgiven. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to go onto our website and listen to that message. And Jesus is also teaching that us that there is a new kingdom and there is a new power and there is a new hope. He leaves the door open for that. Jesus always calls us to walk through the door of forgiveness and reconciliation wherever possible. Therefore, in His love, He doesn't say that adultery automatically means divorce. But in His compassion, there is that concession, knowing the pain that that entails. But the goal in God's mind, again, is always forgiveness and reconciliation wherever possible. 
So then we want to ask the question, what about when reconciliation doesn't happen after divorce? Then we want to ask the question, can a Christian get remarried then? Can a Christian get remarried then? Let me say first that this can be complicated, that this is debated, and that this is sensitive. And I know this probably represents some of us in this room. So what about remarriage? Can a Christian be remarried after divorce? The answer is yes in the right circumstances. The exception clause given by Jesus only in the case of sexual immorality, meaning adultery, applies to both divorce and remarriage. And let me say this. It is the validity of the divorce biblically that establishes eligibility for remarriage biblically. The key principle is if divorce occurs on biblical ground, then the innocent party is free to remarry. So if the divorce happens on biblical ground, abandonment by an unbeliever or adultery, then the innocent party is free to remarry. So everyone in their minds right now is saying, then what about the guilty party? Jesus doesn't address that in this passage. There's perhaps... Maybe even some ambiguity here. Paul does give us a little bit of a parallel idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. Again, when he's talking about some of these things on marriage. That's why I want to encourage you to read that. And he says, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. And the same would be true for him. So Paul would say, if someone chooses to leave in this scenario and therefore becomes the guilty party, there are two options here. One, to be reconciled in that marriage. Or number two, to remain single. That's what Paul says. More importantly, that's what the Lord says through Paul. Maybe that is also the intent of Jesus in the case of adultery. And I think it would seem to suggest that's what Jesus is saying. So at that point, the guilty party would remain single or be reconciled. So Jesus says, one, marriage is permanent. Two, divorce is not the plan. Three, there are two exceptions. Four, but reconciliation is always the hope. And five, and there is the hope for remarriage in those instances. Now I realize, as all, we're all realizing right now, this is a very, very high standard. And it's a high view of marriage and a high view of Scripture it's so high, in fact, that even the disciples who have been with Jesus for a long time, a long time, they're kind of tripping on what Jesus is saying. Look at what it says in verse 10 of our text this morning. The disciples said to him, and this is classic, 
if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. This is all time. That's why I love the disciples. They have the most straightforward, just classic, real responses. And Jesus says in verse 11, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. What Jesus isn't saying there is, well, you pick or choose what you want to believe in the Bible or the Word of God. That is not what he's saying here this morning. Jesus is saying marriage is a gift and it actually is a really, really high calling. And it's kind of a big deal. And it's meant to be permanent. And that will be a great challenge. So not everyone should get married. Not everyone should get married. This is what Jesus is saying here in verse 11. And I know this grates against our popular Christian culture because we have held marriage up to be the ultimate Christian experience. And it's not. You need to hear that, especially you young single people that are not married yet. Marriage is not the ultimate Christian experience, which Jesus will address later in this text as it relates to singleness, part two, next Sunday. The disciples are saying, whoa, this is too high of a view. And Jesus is actually saying, yeah, some of you can't handle it, so you shouldn't get married. So how should we handle that? First of all, I just want to say again, I know this is a sobering and even uncomfortable text. And I can only imagine some in this room feel really uncomfortable and again signaled out. And again, that's not God's goal. That's not my goal. And you are loved by God this morning. I know for some of you this hits very close to home, but I must say again, all of us, all of us, including me, have been affected in some way. None of us live in the perfect ideal of what God intended for a family. All of us experience brokenness. We are all in this boat together in one way or another. And with that said... And knowing this text was, in, was actually framed in the love of God on the cross where Jesus paid the price for every single sin. Some of you as Christians have had unbiblical divorces and unbiblical remarriages. So you're asking the good question, according to the Bible, I have sinned. What do I do about that? Three points. First, realize that in point number one, neither of those is the unforgivable sin. God's grace is abundant. Grace upon grace. And we, the church, capital C, have obviously offended at times. 
in some way we have made divorced and remarried people feel like second class citizens in the church. And that is wrong. And then there is no, and there is no way whether divorce or remarriage if that is you this morning, makes you a second-class citizen. You are a son and daughter of the living God. And your identity is in Christ. His perfect love for you. And let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Neither of those is unforgivable. unforgivable. Remember, it's framed in the cross. If you've had an unbiblical divorce or an unbiblical remarriage, you go to Jesus, you acknowledge His truth, you repent, and you ask for His grace and forgiveness, and you have it. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet now repentance, you may be thinking, gets a little tricky with that issue because we might think, or some of you might think, well, I've had an unbiblical divorce, and so that means I've had an unbiblical remarriage. So now should I go break up, should I break up my current marriage to be reconciled to the first person that I was married to? And the answer is no. That's point number two. Don't try and reverse it. Two wrongs won't make a right. That's not the way it works here. So the third point helps us then. Recognize and commit to living out God's plan for marriage. A new start what it likes what it looks like for marriage now is a new start that's what we all get in Jesus we all get a new start that's what the cross is all about we are new creations in Christ the old has gone the new has come and that is a radical beautiful truth None of us should forget this. Remember verse 1 of our text told us that Jesus taught these things on the way to the cross. That frames our perception of this. Don't underestimate the power of the cross. Don't underestimate the power of God's Spirit and what forgiveness and reconciliation can do. So go to, the, go to Jesus. Go to the cross forgiveness and go there for healing. I can't encourage us enough today to go to Jesus, go to the cross, and go there for healing. I believe with my whole heart, Jesus wants to heal today. Recognize and rejoice in God's truth. Realize that we have all lived in dissidence with God's truth in many ways. And as followers of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, Endeavor, endeavor, endeavor to live in harmony with God's truth as you go forward today. I think we must also then, in light of the cross, 
and this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation say that we shouldn't then give up on our marriages. Marriage is meant to ultimately be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus never gives up on the church. And I know we're not Jesus, we're imperfect, but that is a radical truth for us to consider that Jesus never gives up on us in our rebellion, in our messiness, in our brokenness, in our sin. He never gives up on us. But the work of the cross and forgiveness and reconciliation with the help of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's holy word, with all that, we can fight for our marriages. Maybe harder than we think we can or harder than we've been willing to. Than we've been willing to. Fighting for our marriages for some of us ultimately means surrender. Surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. In the same way Jesus surrendered his will to the Father before going to the cross, we need to surrender our wills to the Father. If your marriage is going through some heavy challenges and you're on the brink or you're even thinking of divorce or you have that thought, today is the day to surrender. To surrender your will, to surrender your expectations or your unmet expectations, to surrender maybe your selfishness or your lack of self. Yeah, because of being selfish, you haven't given that self-sacrificial love. Surrender. That's how we fight for our marriages. We surrender at the foot of the cross. We surrender our marriages and our will to God. And I'd also then say and remind us in light of the fact of this being framed in the cross, that the cross is also the greatest picture of self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love is a beautiful picture of true surrender. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of that. Jesus here, I think, is telling us in the shadow of the cross that this is going to require self-sacrificial love. And Jesus' work on the cross is a picture of that. And I think the problem with a lot of our perspectives today as married couples, as it was in the culture then, is we are not working at it from self-sacrificial love. We're working at it from self-fulfillment and our needs. Self-fulfillment and trying to get our needs met. And if that's the goal in marriage, that's going to be a difficult road. Let me remind those of us who are married today. We must remember that good marriages are not marriages that are without problems. There are none of those. Even couples that you think have it so perfect, they don't. Don't be tempted by couples that think they have, or don't think, they might not think. In our perspective, they look like they have it all perfect. Just know they don't. We all have problems. We all have problems. There are none of those. 
good marriages, marriages are not problem-free. They are rather grace-dependent. Let me say that again. Good marriages are not problem-free. Rather, they are grace-dependent. There are marriages that are dependent upon the grace that God provides in the covenant that He has made. There are marriages that are constantly renewed in God's grace. As we all need God's grace daily, we need to be daily renewed in our marriages by the grace of God. Our marriages daily need to be renewed in the grace of God. And lastly, I'll just say to our Christian community with the capital C and our church today, it's important, it's vital that I think when it comes to the Bible and marriage, our view has been too low. That our view of both Scripture and marriage has been too low. And we need to put the bar back high, biblically speaking, and know the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit will enable us to live biblically for His glory. So marriage is meant to be a sacred, God-formed, God-glorifying joining of a man and a woman for life. And if we can do anything at this point, we can reassert and recapture the ultimate authority of the Word of God and the holiness and the sanctity and the beauty and the covenant of marriage. As God's people... Let's recommit ourselves to those things for His glory and for our joy.